but you get it back next fall, not while I'm preaching this morning. I'm thinking about circulating a petition to do away with this, except I enjoy getting the hour back in the fall. I just don't enjoy this jumping forward or whatever it is that we do. Well, in my lifetime, I don't think I have ever seen our country as divided as it is today. We're divided about everything. We're divided about politics, religion, taxes, foreign policy. Almost any subject we can bring up, we are divided today. It causes us to ask the question, is it possible for us to be united? We are supposed to be one nation under God. Is it possible for us to be united? Is it possible for us to have peace today? If you watch the news, whether it is CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, you would come to the conclusion that it is impossible for us ever to come together again as a nation. And yet, as I look at the Sermon on the Mount, I am reminded that the nation there was divided then, much as we are now. They were divided politically. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, there was political division. They were divided with the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be the conservatives of that day. They wanted everything to be as it had been. They, they wanted everyone to, to cross all the T's, dot all the I's, do the things that they were supposed to do. They were the conservatives. The Sadducees at that time were the liberals. Vines wrote the Sadducees aimed at removing Judaism from its narrowness and sharing in the advantages of Greek life and culture. So their desire then was, let's don't be so conservative, let's not be so narrow-minded that we might take advantage of the Greek culture that is available to us. Then there were the zealots, they were the militants, they wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to do away with it. There were the Essenes, and the Essenes would be like the libertarians today, they simply wanted to be left alone. So when we look at the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, it was similar to ours in that they were divided and they were frustrated. They were very frustrated because of the division, the failure to come together as a nation, as a people. Spiritually, they needed purity. Socially, they needed peace. And so that's where we are as we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount and we look at Beatitudes 6 and 7 today. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. The legalist understood purity as being an external action. One was pure who kept the traditions, who kept the ceremonies, who washed correctly, who observed the days and so forth that they had. If one did that, then one was considered to be pure. So they understood it then from an external vantage point. A person is pure if they do these things externally. We have much the same idea today. We see one as pure who acts pure, who does the things that are acceptable as pure. If one goes to this meeting, reads this book, gives to this cause, supports this action, if one does those things, then that person is pure. I was talking with a pastor not too long ago who said, I have people going from one Bible study to the next, but are self-righteous. They never share the gospel. And he asked me, where is the fruit of righteousness? There are those who see going from one study to another, doing this or doing that, supporting this, giving to that, as being pure. In other words, they understand purity as an external activity. If I do these things, then I am pure. But Jesus saw purity as being internal. Blessed are the pure in heart. In the scripture, the heart speaks of the whole of man, the totality of man. Obviously, it speaks of the Spirit. That is the reason that we say, you know, that I invited Jesus into my heart. Not literally, but it speaks of that spiritually. So when we're talking about the heart, we speak of the Spirit. It's spiritual, but it also involves the mind. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse number 7, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So purity then, when Jesus is speaking of it, may not be so much that I have attended these meetings or I have given to this cause or I have embraced this action, but it's speaking also of what I think, my mind. When I pray and you come to that place, when you confess your sins to the Lord, because the Bible says that we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us. And when I come to that time in my prayer when I confess my sins to the Lord, one of the things that I always ask the Lord to do is forgive me for my sins of thought, word, and deed. See, when Jesus is speaking about purity, he mentions the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. It speaks of the spirit, it speaks of the mind, it speaks of the will because what I believe 
becomes my action. If I believe that turning to the right will take me to my destination, then that's the way that I'm going to go. So when we are talking about the heart, it also refers to your will and obviously includes your emotions. I love so-and-so with all of my heart. So I want you to understand when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, that he's speaking of the spirit, he's speaking of the mind, he's speaking of the will, he is speaking of your actions, he is speaking of the totality of man. That's what the pure person is not one who just does certain actions, but it speaks of the totality of man. The Greek word for purity is katharos. Carries several meanings. It means to clean, to be cleansed. For instance, a doctor will use a cathartic to cleanse a wound. In psychology, there is a catharsis, which is a cleansing of the soul. So when Jesus is speaking about purity, he is speaking about a cleansing, a cleansing. It also means to be purged from uncleanness. So if I'm pure, it means then that I have been purged from uncleanness. Barclay wrote, it is regularly used for corn which has been winnowed or sifted and cleansed of all chaff. It is used of an army which has been purged of all discontented, cowardly, unwilling, and inefficient soldiers. So when we're talking about purity then, it means someone or something that has been cleansed. It is cleaned, cleansed of impurity. It means unmixed. Barclay went on, it is used of milk or wine which is unadulterated with water or of metal which has in it no tinge of alloy. So then, to be pure means that I am clean. I am purged of uncleanness. I am not mixed with worldliness. That's what Jesus is saying when he says that we are to be pure. We are to be pure. There are five kinds of purity. There is primitive purity, and that speaks of God, because God is absolutely pure. He is without sin. There is no sin within God. There is no impurity within God. So he is the primitive purity. And then there's created purity. If God is totally pure, if he is totally sinless, then he can create nothing that is not pure. If he is totally pure, he cannot create that that is impure. That means then at creation everything was pure. The angels, the angels were pure in creation until Lucifer decided that he wanted to be God. Obviously there was the will that he exercised. He decided that he wanted to be God and impurity came. When man was created, man was pure until Adam and Eve decided to disobey God in the Garden of Eden, and then we have been infected with their impurity, but in creation, man was pure. So there is primitive purity, that is God. There is created purity, that is what God created. There is ultimate purity, and that's when we go to heaven. Folks, when we go to heaven, we are free from the presence of sin because there is no sin there. 
I would like to be like Jesus, wouldn't you? But the Bible says when we see him, we will be like him. When I get to heaven, then that is ultimately where I am going to be pure because I am free from the presence of sin. There is positional purity. When I trusted Jesus as my Savior, I, became, I was counted as pure. When you trusted Jesus as Savior, in your position, you were counted as being pure. You know why? Because the Bible says the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to your account. I've said before that is a bookkeeping term. It means that his righteousness is placed in my account and now then I can draw on his account, on his righteousness because it's been placed in my account. So there's positional purity. When a person is saved, that person receives the righteousness of Christ. Thus you reckon yourselves or count yourself to be pure because Christ's righteousness is yours. Then there's practical purity. Now that's the hard part. Positional purity takes place when we are converted. When I trust the Lord as my Savior, then in my position I am pure. There's ultimate purity when I go to be with the Lord and I'm saved from the presence of sin. But between positional purity and ultimate purity, there is practical purity. And that is when we are in the process of sanctification. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement and flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So there is this process of sanctification between my conversion and my going to heaven where I am putting sin out of my life, becoming more like Jesus. That's the hard part. But what is the promise? Look again at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is interesting that that is future continuous tense, and it literally reads, they shall be continually seeing God. In other words, the pure in heart sees God now. If you're pure in heart, you see God now in creation. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Friend, if you are a pure person as Jesus is describing, then you see God in creation. You see God everywhere. When it rains, you see the Lord. When the sun shines, you see the Lord. When there's a rainbow, you see the Lord. When you see a bird fly over, you see the Lord. When you see a tree or a flower, you see the Lord. Because all of creation is a witness of the presence of God. But not only does the pure person see God in creation, the pure person also sees God in circumstances, whether they are favorable or unfavorable. I would imagine all of you probably know Romans 8, 28. 
So I'm going to read Romans 8, 28, and I'm going to tack on verse 29 because I think they go together. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we normally stop there. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Why? Because he's using your circumstances to make you like Jesus. Good circumstances, bad circumstances, doesn't matter. God is at work in your life, conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ because he wants you to be like him. So the pure person sees God now and sees God later. And later he sees him clearly because the Bible says now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. When we see God later, we see him eternally because we are there with him. I was thinking about Billy Graham, a man that I suppose all of us admire so much and love so much and appreciated his ministry. And I was thinking about Billy, he's preached about Jesus all of his life and now he's looking at him face to face. He sees him clearly. You and I look through a glass darkly, but he sees him clearly and he sees him eternally. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I put these two beatitudes together because only the pure make peace. The Bible says in James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. If there is going to be peace, there first of all has to be purity. There are three traditional lines of understanding for peacemaker. There is the understanding that the peacemaker is the one who makes the world better. So the peacemaker is a person who makes the world better. That is one understanding. Abraham Lincoln was referring to that when he said, Die when I may, I would like it to be said of me that I always pulled up a weed and planted a flower where I thought a flower would grow. So there are those who believe that a peacemaker is someone who works to make the world better. That is a peacemaker, someone who makes the world better. Then there are those who believe that it is a reference to personal peace. And the early scholars believe that. They, they believe that when Jesus said that, that he is referring to someone who has made peace within himself. The person who is at peace with himself. Thirdly, the belief is that it is a reference to right relationships. That the peacemaker is one who brings about right relationships. Barclay wrote, the Jewish rabbis held that the highest task which a man can perform is to establish right relationships between man and man, and that is what Jesus means. So those are the three basic areas of understanding about a peacemaker. Well, you have to ask the question, don't you? Why don't we have peace? We desire it, do we not? Why don't we have peace? 
because man's heart is wicked. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. I think I have said to you before, I believe that to be the basic difference between a liberal and a conservative is his view of man. The conservative believes that man is basically evil, that he has a wicked heart. Therefore, he has to be restrained. The liberal believes that man is basically good, and he will do good because he is good. The Bible says that man is desperately wicked, his heart is, therefore there is no peace. There is no peace where the heart is wicked. Isaiah 38, 22 says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Folks, we cannot have peace without changed hearts. See, we, we keep pursuing peace. We keep having policies about peace. We keep writing treaties for peace, and yet there is no peace. Why? Because man's heart has to be changed. Okay, if, if man has a wicked heart, then how can we have peace? Well, peace comes from the Prince of Peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, 3, the Bible says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I, I go to Israel a lot. You know that I love Israel. And, and uh, the Bible says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But there is no peace there. There is conflict that has been there. And there will not be peace until the Lord comes back because he is the Prince of Peace. The only way there's going to be peace is when people know the Lord. So God then is the source of peace. The scripture says in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. We have to have the right heart. Create in me a clean heart. Same word that is used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same word. The reason for that is because God is the source of peace. Because it is God who cleanses our heart. Jesus is the manifestation of peace. If you want to know what peace looks like, you look at Jesus because he is the embodiment of peace. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of peace. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. So we're talking about peace. How do we have peace? God is the source, comes from him. Jesus, the manifestation, he embodies peace. And the Holy Spirit is the agent. As you live your life under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the control of the Holy Spirit, then there is peace. That is the result of it. And you and I as believers are messengers of peace. Because you see, we are at peace with God. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. You are at peace with God. And if you are at peace with God, then you can be at peace with man. So Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. John MacArthur wrote, We should conscientiously work on being peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what's the merit? They will be called the sons of God. Is that amazing to you? It is to me. They will be called the sons of God. Did you know that God loves you as a son? You parents, you have children, you have a little bit of understanding as to what it means because of the way you love your child. God loves you as his son. 
and God forgives you as his son. When my grandchildren were little, they'd, you know, paint these pictures or draw these pictures. They'd hand them to me so proud of what they'd done. And I'd look at it and I, I would smile and say, isn't that wonderful? What is it? And they'd tell me whatever it was. It's an airplane, a car or something. I don't, you could never tell it by looking at it. But you know what? That was beautiful to me because they painted it. God loves you in your imperfections and forgives you of imperfections as you come to him. And you're beautiful to God, not because you're perfect, but because you're a son. And God provides for his sons as a father provides for his sons. So thus far, what have we learned in these Beatitudes that we begin by recognizing our spiritual poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit, that I have nothing to offer to God. I understand that I'm a spiritual beggar Blessed are those who mourn. Because of my condition, I mourn over my condition. Then I'm humbled by my condition. Blessed are the meek, the gentle. And then I begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness because that's what I want. I want the righteousness of God, and so I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then I am merciful to others. Then I'm pure in heart. And if I'm pure in heart, I become a peacemaker because the pure in heart make peace. Folks, if you're ever going to be at peace inside, then Jesus has to be the Lord of your heart. If you're ever going to be at peace outside, then Jesus has to be the Lord of your heart. And that's what it means to be a peacemaker. Our Father in God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. And I thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who applies it to our hearts and teaches us what we need to know, brings conviction of sin that we might deal with it. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will guide this invitation. In his name I pray, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We offer an invitation. Friend, if you don't know the Lord today, I encourage you to receive him. Let him be your Lord and Savior. If you're looking for a church home, our door's open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, you come. The staff will be to receive you. I'll greet you as you come. Christ is
But just read through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and uh, read it in context as the Lord has given it. I think it'll be a blessing to you as you do. Now, I saw Anne-Marie up there. Anne-Marie Green, stand right up there. She is in the choir. I, uh, you know, we prayed for you as you are in, in uh, this, this race in District 69 in Lexington. And you made it to the runoff, didn't you? Is that this Tuesday? All right, continue to pray for her. And uh, if, uh, if she's elected, she's going to sing a solo next <laughs> Sunday. No, maybe if she is, she won't. All right, J.B. Barker, where is he? Where? There he is. Stand up, J.B. I want you to look at that. J.B. Barker Public Boat Landing. He, that was named after him. Twenty-eight years as a game warden out there, I understand, J.B. If we all came out there and went hunting or fishing or something, you would overlook it, right? <laughs> just tell you, if you get out there and you don't have your license or something, just say, I know, J.B. <laughs> You'll be fine. Easter schedule is in your bulletin. Invite people, read that. Uh, April the 6th, you're going to be interested in this. April the 6th. Uh, Senator Tim Scott and Congressman Trey Gowdy are going to be here. It's on a Friday, I believe. But they are doing, a, uh, I think, about three meetings across the state, and it's about race relations. And uh, so they're go both going to be speaking. They want to know if they could do it at First Baptist. We said, we'd love for you to. Now, you have to have tickets, and I think Steve has some. They'll be available in the, uh, in the office um, tomorrow. They don't cost anything, but they, you know, it's, I guess it's crowd handling that or something. But if you want to come, they have given us some tickets, and uh, then they will make them public on the website. But I think it's going to be an interesting, interesting evening. But that's April the 6th, just so you will have it down. Let me give you a finance update at this point. We've gone through January and February. At the end of February, we're minus 193, that's $193,000. So we're down a little bit more than I, I would like for us to be. But at the same time last year, we had one more Sunday than we have so far. So that explains a part of it. But just let me ask you to be faithful. Here's one good thing that, uh, you know, in Project Next, in the building that we have done over here, you have given, you just went over and you're giving Project Next over the $4 million mark. And uh, so we are very excited about that and, and grateful to you for your continued generosity. Uh, deacon prayer. We have deacons meeting tomorrow night. And uh, if you, uh, you saw the video of our deacons, we have a prayer team. They get together at 530 to pray for people over in Lindsay up on the third floor. And if you'd like for them to pray for you, uh, just be over there at 530. They'd be happy to lay hands on and pray for. That's what they do. Godly men, wonderful men. And if you can't be there, but you would like for them to pray for whatever need you have, there's a place, there's a little card or something in the pew in front of you. Just fill it out. And Doug Trevitt, right over here, give it to him because he's going to be the one who will take it to the prayer meeting on Monday night. And so if you have prayer needs, you go and do that. All right, college students, those that are left, I guess uh, they, they're, having, uh, they're having their lunch in their regular program. All right, so you have free lunch over in 1420 Sumter. And if you have any prayer needs now, these deacons with red badges, I'll be happy to pray for you. Let's stand together as we're dismissed. Father and God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And Lord, we thank you for your great love that you call us sons. I pray, Father, that we'll live as a reflection of the Father in whose name I pray.